that exercise is right on point with what we'll be talking about this morning in the scriptures. Last week, we had um, opened a series on the disciplines of our faith and the things that the scriptures have called us to do to um, work out our own salvation, to practice the things that um, draw us to the Lord, that draw us closer to one another, and to make us more effective for the kingdom. And we had talked about the fact that using a word like spirituality conjoined with a word like discipline is not something that we think of in the cultural ears that you and I have developed throughout the course of our lives. We don't think of spirituality to be the kind of thing that we actually have to fight for or wrestle with or engage in. But Paul told Timothy in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he says, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed, having nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul is using a word train and he even says toil and strive, but we get our word gymnasium from the same word that he's using tra uh, train. And so we understand what we do in a gym is to work up a sweat and to work things out and to try to sharpen our skills or improve our skills or to work harder. So Paul wanted his readers to understand that their spiritual growth would be tied to the effort they put in the metaphorical or the spiritual gym. Work is required for you and I to be more what we would typically say to be more spiritual. We are battling elements on every front all the time. You know this, but sometimes it just takes a good, healthy reminder to re-engage us in this battle. We know that we are dealing with the pressure of a system that is bent against God and all that he cares about, all that he intends to do, his will for mankind. And that system we would call the world not necessarily the individuals in it. And I think sometimes that's where it's gotten pretty confusing for the church over the years is we end up doing battle with people rather than recognizing that people represent a system that has been schemed and built to go against the principles of God. So we're battling the world. We're battling our own selves as we get up every single day. And we live to build a kingdom that, that serves us, that appreciates our existence, that feels like everything that you and I want, we should have that kind of thing. And so that's the flesh that you and I have been born in, that the spirit is piece by piece bringing back or reconciling back to God. We have that battle going on all the time. And then, of course, so much of this is orchestrated by the devil himself, the real personality of Satan, who is actively scheming to thwart the progress of the church and the glory of God. 
I mean, this is a battle. It's on, it's on every front. And so when we liken our Christian growth or our connection with God to just a passive journey, we are setting ourselves up for failure for one, but we're also really hurting the cause of growth in others because we want to adopt sort of the worldly mindset. We just need to chill. Take this as it comes, no big deal, nothing to work at, nothing to sweat out. Spirituality in our day and age connotes really a, a thought of jumping in the river and letting the current take you. And I've done this on a couple of occasions, gone white water rafting with some of the guys here in the church and one of my favorite parts is I've done it a couple of times and my favorite memory of the activity itself is when the guide says, you can go ahead and jump out now because we're in a section of the river that if you want to just jump out and let the current take you, you know, you kind of hang on to your vest and you keep your feet forward as you're laying on your back and you're going to be able to, you're going to want to try to swerve around some of the rocks coming and stuff, but don't panic if you can't quite avoid them. Keep your feet forward, relax your body. The current of the water will run right over the top of the rock. And I got to tell you, I saw the peaks of those rocks coming. I'm like, there's no way. Sure enough, you kind of go floating right over it. I want my spiritual journey to feel like that. I want to feel like all I have to do is just jump in the flow and it just takes over and I'm watching the trees whip by me and I feel the warmth of the water and we're just moving in a direction. But, but really, as you study the scriptures and what believers in the New Testament were experiencing, it's almost like having to turn around and swim up that stream. As the flow of the current of the world and all the enemies that we battle is just pushing against us and we're swimming and so often we feel like we're not getting anywhere. We are in a daily battle with the isms of the culture around us. We have humanism prevailing through every institution, through our education system, where it says mankind is the authority, the final authority of all things in our lives. And so we answer to ourselves. We make up our own rules as they seem right to us as we go. Pluralism says, basically, what you discover for your own truth is fine for you. I'm going to be on my own journey, and I'm going to expect that that's fine for me. See, all these isms, they run into a dead end, though. They run into a place where they go, well, wait a second. I can't have full autonomy over my life and expect you to have the same and us not eventually clash. Whose truth wins out when that becomes a reality? I think one of the isms that kind of feeds the undercurrent of all of these other ones is uh, is one that is definitely much more accepted in our society today called hedonism, which is you and I, as we pursue our own pleasures in life, we have the right to them. Whatever gives us that charge, whatever gives us that feeling, whatever gives us that whatever connection or, 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 or contact in life, then we're, we're, we're on the right path. Hedonism says, I have the right because I answer to myself. I have the right to pursue whatever pleasures I want, even to the detriment of others. All of these isms are constantly pushing us downstream. And the Lord's saying, just flip yourself around. Stop pointing your feet forward. Don't expect every rock's just going to be a nice smooth hump over. You got to turn around. You got to start swimming in the other direction. These are isms that you and I were rescued from. Paul told the Ephesian church in chapter 2, Beginning in the uh, verse one, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were heading down that river. We were taken up in the current, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else. That was the current that you and I were saved out of, that we're plucked out of. We're all heading down this river, and the Lord, for whatever reason, in his grace and mercy, spoke to us, and we responded. He says, I'm going to pull you out of that. And so that's why we are focusing our time together on this word called discipline, because we can't just expect this life to come naturally to us. Everything in our lives, in our being, in a world around us is trying to push us down this current of moving further and further away from the will of God. So as we come into prayer this week, we could say, well, that's kind of a no brainer, right? I mean, it's an assumed Christian practice. Even outside of Christianity, that religion itself is synonymous with prayer. We all understand that. It's a global concept. There are entire buildings and walls and and features built entirely around the practice of prayer. So we understand its responsibility, but at the same time, we still struggle with practicing it. So before we get too far in this, let's do just that together. Let's practice prayer together. Would you join me? Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together. I thank you for a powerful time in music already this morning to unite our hearts and to unite our minds on your goodness and your grace in our lives. There really is no one like you. We try to normalize you. We try to reduce you into things we can understand. But God, you are outside of all of those things. There is no one like you. As we are lifting up your greatness in worship, Lord, we are united in our smallness. And as we see one another as people fully dependent on a good and gracious God, an all-knowing God, a sovereign God, as Pastor Gary mentioned earlier, Lord, we know that we draw closer to one another. So help us, Lord, to have these conversations with you. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of the fact that even though we can't see you, you hear us and you long to hear our voice. Be faithful through your word to us today, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into some specifics of maybe how to pray and and that kind of thing, which we certainly will, it's important to do that. I wanted to go to a couple of passages of scripture. There's a lot of scripture in the message today, probably will be so in the next couple of weeks. So if you're new to the Bible, last week we encouraged people to start carrying their Bibles a little bit more than we're perhaps accustomed to and stuff. But if you're new to your scriptures, don't think I just set you up for a trap because you're going to go, wait, he's over here now. Now he's back here. I don't even know. I'm trying to figure it out. So on your notes at the top of the page, it says key verses used in the, in the sermon today. So if you're missing where I'm going, that's what those are there for, for you to go back and to study those again. But we are going to be using several passages of scripture that will keep us fairly busy in the time that we have left. I want to point our attention to a couple in particular as we get going that aren't classic prayer passages. Last week, we talked about one of the classic, the authority of the word of God and how important it is. But but this week, I'm going to point you to a couple of passages that you might go, well, those don't seem like prayer passages, and there's a reason for that. The first is in Matthew 8, when Jesus is calming the angry sea. Most of us are familiar with this, but in verses 23 through 27, the scripture says, and he got into the boat, that's Jesus, his disciples followed him. 
And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep and they went and woke him saying a prayer. doesn't say that, but this is a prayer. This is a prayer of desperation. This is a prayer of urgency. It's a, it's a statement that comes out of their mouth going to the only one who can actually do anything about it, right? That's what makes this a prayer. Even though he's physically in front of them, they're not praying a spiritual prayer as we would expect, but they simply say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the, man, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I, we don't have time to draw this out and really paint the picture, but if you've wrestled with this passage before, I mean, it's really profound, really, really profound. If you picture yourself in that boat and you could actually physically see somebody speak to the sky and the sky obey that voice and do the exact opposite of everything it was building up to do and every, every um, uh, powerful thing that it was, pu- that it was uh, playing out and then he stops it dead in his tracks. So they would have been in, they would have been in direct contact with an answer to prayer that they didn't see coming. They said, save us. They didn't necessarily say, Hey, can you stop this? Like they had that much faith. Isn't there a button you can push? That's not what they were expecting. In Mark chapter nine, there's a story of how Jesus is healing a boy with an unclean spirit. And, and this boy is being, um, plagued, this very young boy is being plagued by the presence of a spirit that is making him do all kinds of convulsing and foaming things. And, and, the, and the dad even describes in verse 21, after Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' statement next is really crazy. He says, uh, he says uh, if you can, my, my text doesn't have a question mark, but that's how I read it. The dad says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And he goes, if, if you can do anything, let's see what we can do here. All things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, I think. <laughs> I believe, I really, I believe, I, I believe you can do something or you're going to have to help me. Because I don't know if my belief really matches what you expect from me. I don't know what I'm really expecting here. It'd be like the guys on the boat saying, I believe you can save us. Do you believe I can stop the storm? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I just figured maybe you had a raft in your back pocket or something. I don't know. We were desperate. We cried out to you. Can you help us? So Jesus does. He heals the child, casts the demons out. Everything's hunky-dory. We jump down to verse 28. And uh, when he had entered the house, his disciples who had previously failed at getting these demons to leave this child, they, they tried in their own measure of faith to get rid of him. And, he, and they, they pull him aside and they said, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we get rid of this demon? In verse 29, he said to them, this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's a lot of kind of head scratching things going on in this passage. He seems to be singling out this particular type of event in the spiritual world. 
and saying, oh, this particular instance, you guys were wrong. You were trying to cast out by words and saying in the name of Jesus, all this kind of stuff. This particular one only gets cast out by prayer. I'm not going to explain all those things because I don't have those explanations. But Jesus is saying that prayer is the only thing that would have rescued this child. So in both of these instances in Matthew and in Mark and in so many other places in the scripture, Old Testament and New, we have proof after proof after proof of the power of prayer. You and I don't need that much convincing, do we, though? We've heard these stories before. You and I understand that prayer is powerful. There are people that don't even believe in God who have seen some of the effects of prayer. They go, I'm having a hard time explaining that one. But if prayer is so powerful, why is it one of the most difficult disciplines for you and I as followers of Christ to engage in? Why is it tough for us to make time every day? Why is it tough for us to find the words to say? Why is it difficult for us to let our voices be heard in a public prayer? Why are those things tough for us? Even though we have so much evidence and belief that they are powerful. It'd be kind of like if I said, um, we discovered there's a money tree behind the youth building and um, it just keeps producing more and more hundred dollar bills. We can't seem to keep up with it. And uh, we don't want to hoard it all ourselves. We want to be a blessing to our church community. We're encouraging you folks to, you know, be patient, kind of get in line and all that sort of stuff. But stop by the money tree as often as you need to. We'll work it out. We'll make sure things are done in an orderly fashion. But it doesn't seem like we can tap the end of this. So you might as well keep coming by and getting a little bit to help you get through the normal needs of life. And we'd all be like, well, that's pretty sweet. That's pretty cool. Thank you for pointing it out to us. Could have kept it to yourselves. Well, that's how good we are. That's who we are as people. There's no money tree, by the way. So it's fictitious glory. I'm trying to wad in here. So uh, the idea is that we would eventually, because of who we are, we would enjoy it. We would appreciate it. We would eventually get a little bit like, oh, man, why did that guy get in line ahead of me? Eventually, it would start becoming an inconvenience. We'd be like, oh, I forgot. I would, I, you know, it's, it's a little embarrassing to need it. Um, sometimes the, the lower branches aren't really filling in, and I have to figure out ways to get the dollar bills that are up higher, and that's just becoming effort. And we start to get used to a thing that's available to us, and we start to find all kinds of reasons not to engage in it anymore. I know it's a difficult thing for us to understand because who in the world would pass up a money tree? And my point isn't to make a correlation, a direct correlation between prayer and our finances as though like this is one of those kind of ministries that says if you just pray harder, you will have one of those money trees in your backyard essentially. The point is this, is that you and I have all kinds of strange ways to justify the thing that was meant to be in a tremendous blessing and a resource in our life. Other things in our life, the other realities of life crowded out. Prayer does become a matter of time. I just don't have the time to do it anymore. It becomes a matter of distraction, right? And these are all things that was like, I was the easiest part of my notes to write. Uh, what are all the reasons why I don't pray as much as I think I should? Because of time, because of distraction. Every time I close my eyes, I picture everything else. As though those things wouldn't be things to pray about as well. The awkwardness so many times because our, our prayers are called to be in public. We have to share these things with other people. People put the pressure on us of what would you like me to pray about for you? And oh, I got to think of something. What do I come up with? There's all these awkward environments around prayer. 
the awkwardness of your speaking to somebody who's not physically in the room with you. You can't see them. And many that I'm hearing lately too, or that feeling of unworthiness of I'm talking to the great and perfect God of the universe. And I know who I am. And it's having a hard, I'm having a hard time engaging in a regular dialogue with him, knowing I owe him so much. I believe that prayer is a matter of belief. I think that you and I always do what we believe. We always practice our belief system and you go, ah, I don't really think so. There's a lot of things I believe that I don't, I don't live up to. I believe certain things about who the Lord is or how, how good he is in my life. And I don't always live by that, but hear me out for a second. I'm not talking about the things that we want to believe are true. I'm talking about the things that we do believe are true. You and I drive in vehicles every day that we believe are going to get us from point A to point B. We engage in relationships that we believe are going to try to take care of us and not make our lives miserable. All of those beliefs and many others like it cause us to act on those beliefs. We believe the chairs that we're sitting in today are going to hold us up. How awkward would that be if one didn't right now? We believe these things. And so everything we do is an exact response to that belief system. And so if we do not pray, if we are not speaking to the perceptibly invisible God, it's because we don't believe he's either with us in the room. We don't believe he hears us. Maybe we don't believe that he wants to hear from us. Maybe we don't believe we have the right words to share with him. Our prayer life or the hindrances to our prayer life are based on our belief system as faulty as it may be. So many of my illustrations come from movies I've seen throughout the years. I apologize. That's what's filling up this brain is a bunch of entertainment mush. Really wish I'd made some different choices when I was younger. Thinking I'd be standing here in front of you would have helped me out a lot. I'm picturing a movie scene where students are in a law classroom at Harvard, I believe, and uh, there's a brilliant kid, kind of the, the, the teacher's pet, you know, the, the one who knows everything and, and uh, well beyond his years in terms of knowledge. He's a little bit off-center, the way he acts socially and stuff. And the professor is saying, what is this particular uh, answer to the legal problem that we're facing? And he shouts it out because he knows it. It's this. She goes, you sure about that? And he goes, yes, I think so. Would you bet your life on it? Yes, I think I would. And she has her paper kind of rolled up. And she taps another student on the head. She goes, would you bet her life on it? And he goes, and he, you could tell he pauses. He's not as confident now. And she says, every uh, arrogant position that you believe you know, every claim of what you brag or, or things that you're confident in, you're in your profession going to be a lawyer in a courtroom. It's not just whether or not you could survive it. It's whether or not they could. And you could see doubt starting to fill his mind that his belief in his own right answer was wavering because of the stakes were raised. This is what you and I are up against when it comes to our belief in the Lord's involvement in our life. It's, it's what we're up against when, uh, we want to believe that he's moving in our lives, that he's available to hear us at the drop of a hat, that he will make up for our miscommunications or the things that we just don't get right when we're talking to the the great and awesome God. But if we don't engage in it, we're really not acting uh, in what we want to believe. We're acting on our current belief system. 
So we have an outline uh, before you, and I was really pleased to find a um, one of these little soft things on my microphone. If any of you were distracted, I'm sorry. I came down just before coming up, and I realized the one I had on there fell off. And it's called a pop stopper, because every time I say a P word, without it, it would be like, well, I, I was sitting there going, oh, I'm just going to get by without it. And then I realized my outline is a bunch of P words. And so as you're looking at the outline and as you're going back over your notes this week, as I know you students will, I want you to say it exaggeratingly that we're going to be talking about prayer's purpose. And we're going to be talking about our practice in prayer and the posture in prayer and everything, because that's what preachers do. So they come up with all these alliterations for their outline. They entertain us. You guys don't really care about them, but they entertain us, keep us in the game. So. First thing that we're going to be looking at is prayer's purpose. I want to answer the question, is prayer just a religious exercise to make us feel faithful? Prayer as a, as, as a, as a vehicle or as a mechanism, as much mystery as there is, I won't have words that kind of button up all the points of prayer. I, I don't have the, 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 the clearest of answers through everything. And it's partially because I don't know them all, but also partially because I don't think the Lord spells out all the the, the reasons why prayer is such a needed and reliable thing that he's given his children to engage in. But we do know that prayer shapes who we are to be in Christ, that our character is formed in the process of this thing that we call prayer. As I come before him and I, and I, and I bow my head and I, and I pray to a God that I believe is omniscient, which means he knows everything. He, he understands the entire landscape that I'm walking in. He understands the very fabric of my being. He knows everything I've done past, present, and will do in the future. This is how much God knows. He understands all this and I'm about to come before him. I can't, I can't do any smoke screen like I can with you. How'd your week go? I was great. And you have to believe me. And you look for some signs on my face or in my, the way I answer that as to whether or not I'm telling the truth, but you have no idea. He isn't limited by any of those things. I come before him in intimacy and I'm laying myself bare before him. And I'm saying, I'm about ready to speak to you, knowing I have no business doing it apart from what Jesus has done for me. Because of his glory and his character, because of his perfection and holiness, I have no business being in his presence unless all that I've done, all that I am has been covered and made clean by his son, Jesus Christ. And imagine bowing your head in that intimate moment, leaving yourself vulnerable before him and not being rejected. And just think about the incredible blessing it is for you and me to come before the Lord in prayer and to have the one relationship in our, in our life not reject us for who we truly are. He doesn't squash us like a bug the minute we bow our head. He doesn't shout and tear open the clouds and say, who do you think you are coming to me like this so casually? I know who you are. I know what you've done. He doesn't do this. And because he knows who I can be and he has plans for me, as the scripture tells us, that I am going to experience direction and healing in this practice. Imagine not only not being rejected for who you are, but picked up, 
dusted off, brushed off, set straight and saying, let's keep it going. Keep heading in that direction. I'm with you. I'm leading you. This is what prayer does to shape our character. Even just the posture, even just the presence of it, even just coming before the Lord and sharing these words and practicing it and everything even gives us that benefit before he's even answered one single prayer request on our list. Prayer places who we want to be under who God already is. This is a shaping of our will. So we've got a shaping of our character, but also a shaping of our will. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive even a piddly perishable wreath, this thing of paisley that will eventually rot and die away, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, we have that problem of our own will that we talked about. It's one of our great battles. Paul is saying, I can't take this lightly. I'm not just going to be swinging in the air. I know what I'm fighting and most of it is me. A missionary to India, um, E. Stanley Jones, said, if I throw out a boat hook from the boat, to catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to his. I think so, so, so much the exhaustion of prayer is us trying to convince God to get on our side. Part of the reason why we feel defeated in it is because he's not answering the things that we're asking. And rather than re-engaging and saying, am I asking for me to be aligned with his will? Or do I keep trying to convince him to come to the other side? Change teams. The purpose behind why we pray, it does have a tendency to shift from time to time as we start to mature in Jesus Christ. What was a prayer life largely prompted by things like duty for us to feel some religion. I want to be faithful to this thing. So I want to do it over and over or even a desperation and a need for deliverance from the difficulties in my life. What that could become would better become uh, driven by a desire to have Christ be my everything. So he understands that most of our prayers sound like the guys in the boat. Lord, save us. My life's being threatened. And, and he's got the power to rescue us from those things. He doesn't dismiss those kinds of prayers. But what becomes better in our Christian maturity is that we just say, Lord, even if I perish, the last words on my lips as I'm getting ready to go underneath like Bugs Bunny when they'd always hold the two fingers up for whatever reason. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Again, Bugs Bunny illustrations. That's what I got. And as you're drowning, you know, instead of it just being the last thing you see, may they hear the words of Christ's faithfulness and my surrender to his will, even as I'm going under. Is that, is that where our prayer grows to? So that the items on our list become less and less important and more the shaping of my character and my will to be aligned with him and his become more important. So let's look at the Again, we have to do it with exaggerated P's, the posture of prayer. Is there a right way or a wrong way to pray? What if I get it wrong? That's a legitimate question. I've heard it quite often. 
So much in the history of the church has been made these beautiful oratory prayers, things that have God ascending to such high um, uh, uh, images in our language and things. And of course, that's important. I mean, God is mighty and he is holy and he is beyond everything that we comprehend. And so mankind in our feebleness tries to craft a language that can show how important he is to us. But we have to understand that the message of the gospel is that he condescended. He came down to us. And so there is a quote-unquote right way or wrong way to pray. We just don't look at it the way that the Lord does. Here's how Jesus illustrated it in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He told this parable to listen to the setup here. He gives us the context of why he's sharing this story. A parable is a story that you can't extract every blade of truth from every little detail. It's meant to convey a kind of a large um, point and illustrate it in a way that the people can understand. And it's, it's supposed to be told with just a hinge of, of mystery to it. Not everything is ex- expressly spelled out. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the audience that he's mostly speaking to are the people that would sound like, Oh, Lord, I am this and I am that and these others are not. And how people look down on other people and feel like I've got it all figured out. Those poor peasants don't. So this is the story he tells in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector who is one of the most hated job descriptions in their society because he's coming for your taxes. And the rumor was he wasn't just giving it right to the government and keeping all things above board, that it was an easy scheme in order to get a little off the top for yourself. So tax collectors, not real popular people. So they're usually the butt of the jokes and the illustrations in the parables. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector whom we all know is a moron and hated by our society. I'm so glad that I didn't choose that lifestyle and you can trust me, God. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, on the other hand, standing far away, he's having a hard time even wanting to be heard by anybody else around him. He wants to do this kind of privately, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. It's all Jesus wanted to share for an example of the kind of prayer this man needed to pray. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, the one who had one sentence, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This isn't necessarily just a lesson on prayer. It's a lesson on posture. But I find it interesting that posture is given to us in the context of prayer. Our posture needs to be in all things. I don't deserve this life that I'm living. I don't deserve this grace that I'm experiencing from God. So why wouldn't it bleed through in our prayer life? Why wouldn't our prayers be saturated with this humility, with this this um, this self-deprecating kind of, Lord, I get in my way. Thank you so much for your grace that hears me and sees me regardless of myself. So often our prayers, we jump right into my needs, my list. God, hear me. 
But the posture and how we come in isn't this kind of thing like, Lord, I know what a privilege it is to speak to you because I've done everything to the contrary to earn this right. But I have it anyway because of what your son has done in me and for me. So there's a humility that leads us into prayer. Also, in our posture, we, we do well to stay on track with our discipline, not just trusting the way we feel going into prayer, not just trusting the way that our mind's going to naturally flow. That's why so often um, prayer methods and, and techniques and sort of outlines are helpful to us because so much of us wants to float down the current, right? And it takes us away from wrestling with the will of God. So if we stay on track with certain discipline techniques or or focus um, points or something it does help us in our prayer things like meditation and understanding that that it isn't just the the gurus from the east who have uh, owned and uh, operated the the skill or the art of meditation what they do is they open themselves up to a spirit world that is quite dangerous what meditation was given to us was to 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 ponder the truth of the Lord that he's already given us in our hearts and to reflect on what that truth means for us. And, and, and if you're being honest, if I'm being honest, we need to do that in quietness. You know, I, I am the first one to confess that almost the second my key turns in my car, the radio is on. I'm filling my life with all kinds of either information or music or things along those lines that, and I love quiet solitude. I've told people before, if I'm at the shore and I see waves coming in, I could stand there for an hour and not realize an hour has gone by and having nothing, just hearing waves. Why don't I take advantage of that more and more to think and process, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What are you trying to show me? I find so often when I just take a minute and not let everything cloud my judgment, cloud my, you know, and influence me and my thought process that he speaks even louder. Meditation is important when it comes to prayer, not just to get through the list, but to hear from the, the, the word of the Lord confession as we've already kind of talked about, and even it's strengthened for us in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I'd held on to my sin and kind of given it a safe harbor, the Lord would have not listened. So instead, it's like having a list of saying, Lord, I know because you're faithful to forgive, I give you this list. I have to deal with this now. If I, if I carry this sin around and don't clear this with you, then I know that you're, you're kind of be kind of like blocking your ear and say, don't we have something to, to straighten away here? So much of my initial prayer time is like, Lord, I can't even get into the stuff that I really want to talk to you about because I, I just feel like I, I owe you this explanation of, of who I've been. I think I need to acknowledge the fact that because your son was so uh, willing to obey you and go to the cross that I need to give this back to you and thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you because the word says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us, that I don't need to say, so therefore, I guess we won't get into business today in prayer, God, because I, I'm a dirt bag. So I got to, he says, no, no, no. You told me I've already paid for it. Remember I've already paid for it. Air is clear. Forgiveness is there. Dust brushed, brushed off. Now let's move forward. What did you want to talk to me about? And of course, that will naturally, the more that you and I engage the, the unworthiness we have of the grace that we've been shown, it moves us into a posture of worship, that we start to celebrate who God is, how faithful he's been in our life. The, these are just 
aspects, tips, if you will, scratching the surface of how we can approach prayer. Of course, there's a million things out there on the internet. If you said, well, I'm actually looking for a system and everything, that's not what we're covering this morning, but they're available and they're helpful. But we need to understand that our posture is one of having received so much grace that it should change our approach to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So how do we practice prayer? How can I make my prayer life more effective? Paul told the Ephesians again in chapter six this time, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So there's some clues in this. First one we'll pick out is that he says that we should be praying at all times in the spirit. And praying in the spirit is, 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 is joining the, the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it, we are told, um, well, in Romans 8 verses 26 through 27, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. I think it's better for believers to admit, yeah, we're pretty weak when it comes to prayer. If anybody says, and I I struggle with this phrase sometimes when people have been in a prayer meeting or they've heard somebody open a prayer, that guy can really pray. I don't know what that means. I don't really know what that means. I'm impressed by it too, but I don't know why. I don't know if God is. I've been with people that I think really, really pray. It's kind of effortless. It really seems like they're, having a conversation with God, it does not necessarily mean that their words are, are fluent, that their ideas are profound. Let's not get this confused. Scripture says that the spirit helps us in our weakness. There's an assumption there that we're pretty weak when it comes to these things. For we don't know what to pray, he continues to say in verse 26. For as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I have no idea what that means. I almost want to not hear it either. But if the spirit is picking up our weaknesses, he says, I've got this, what you intended to say or what you wanted to focus on because I've watched your life. I've seen your heart. I know what the Lord wants to do in your life. It needs to sound like this. I'm going to change it a little bit along the way. There's a partnership. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit prays for us and joins us in our praying by infusing his prayers into ours. So the next time you're intimidated to come to the practice of, of, of speaking to a God you can't see, understand that you're not doing it alone. Understand that you are not trying to come up with words to impress God. He's hearing groanings and utterings that you wouldn't even understand. So don't try too hard in all of that kind of impression. Be yourself, but be honest and, 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 and pour out to the Lord. And he also says at all times, so we can take from this, he wants us to pray continually, which is a strange concept, especially if we continue to think that praying is closing our eyes and sitting still and listening for si- through silence and all these other things that we, we pigeon it down, pigeonhole it down to being. But praying continually is more of a constant inclination of our hearts that as I walk in a spirit of prayer, I am constantly dependent on the Lord for answers. I was speaking to some uh, 
dear people in our church a few months, a couple months ago, and we were challenging on this idea of praying and when to pray and how and, and that sort of thing. And I encouraged them to, to pray for wisdom. The next time you come into a situation, one gentleman was doing a job that required him to think creatively a lot and solve problems he hadn't seen before. I said, instead of just instantly diving into this thing of like, all right, I got to go back to Google or go back to the books or the manuals and figure this thing out. Just take a second and say, Lord, you have given me insight that I'm not recognizing yet. Would you please give me some creativity and some insight into this? before I just get going. And it was difficult probably to do because naturally with a career that someone's done for so long, they just dive right in, try it. Cause it's usually worked out this time. Give it to the Lord. And there were certain responses and actions that came out of that, that he was able to point back to and said, I would have never seen that solution before. Again, I, I hesitate to say things like this because it sounds like some kind of magic genie in a lamp and a promise that if you just do that, it'll always happen. But the point is, is that our practice of prayer, if it's continual, it means that in all things, we just pause for a second and say, have I prayed about this? Lord, Lord, what are you wanting me to do and say right now? And that becomes habitual more than the other, which is, ah, I got to figure this out. I'll roll up my sleeves and get it done. Also, our prayer life in our practice is to be varied in other words, various situations require a variety of prayers. We sometimes need to pray prayers of self-control because we're being tempted more than the usual. It's like a, a season, or I've explained it before to people that pray for me. I said, sometimes it feels like a dark cloud moves in and you've got to weather the storm and you, you hunker down. Lord, move this cloud along. I don't want to feel this or think this anymore. So we pray prayers of urgent self-control, kind of like the guys in the boat. Lord, calm the storm. We're going to perish here. Or sometimes when we're going through particular bouts of loneliness or jealousy, we're going to be going through holiday seasons where it seems like other people have things more clicking for them than we do or something. Lord, how do I pray prayers asking for your presence to be a reality in my life? How do you make yourself known to me more now than ever before? Those prayers are a different form than just the prayers of self-control to fight temptation. We're going into Thanksgiving, and so what if we took this week just to pray prayers of thanks? That the urgency of the things on our list, we just said, I'm not even going to go there yet because I have so much to just recount to the Lord of how good he's been to me, that I can pray prayers of thanksgiving. Paul again tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. There's coming at it from all different angles, this thing called prayer. And our prayer needs to be like Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open unto you. The Lord is saying, be persistent in your prayer. Don't just be bullheaded. Don't just think, well, I'm going to pray until he gives me the thing I'm begging for. But even Jesus in another parable praises a woman who kept coming back to the courts and coming back to the judge and appealing for a certain decision and over and over and over again. And he finally said, look, I don't even believe in this God. This woman claims to be serving. I don't even really care about her situation. I'm just tired of her persistence. Give her what she wants. Why would Jesus share that with us? keeping in mind that prayer shapes our will to his. We walk in him, we learn more of him, that our prayers become more aligned with the things he wants in our life. So this isn't an encouragement to just keep praying for the yacht and don't give up until he gives it to you. 
that the persistency is in, Lord, I know what you're trying to do and what you want to shape my life to be. Please don't stop until it's accomplished. And then lastly, this would be another point of application, I think, here for our practice, is that I think one of the most important modes of prayer that we can engage in is intercessory prayer. For you and I, this is going to bleed into our subject for next week, Lord willing, as we talk about community and fellowship and, and, and looking after one another, that you and I is one of the most valuable prayer time we can share is praying for the needs of other people. To be motivated by the needs of others more than our own. And I will admit to you, if I don't intentionally build a prayer list filled with so many other people's needs, that my list gets really long with all the things I want the Lord to do in my life or for me. So when do I start making that shift and saying, Lord, make others more important than me? And that's certainly the lesson that Paul was teaching, even the Philippian church, helping them understand that their needs were not as important as others. So, so often when we go to pray in public or we pray out loud, um, I saw this happen so much as I was growing up in church. My, my, my dad was the exact opposite of me in terms of being willing to do something like this. For whatever reason, this doesn't really intimidate me a whole lot. There's other aspects of it that do. But um, just being in front and, and looking like an idiot just doesn't really bother me too much. And, uh, and, and he was voted most shy in his class in high school and, and things. You'd never know that his offspring would be doing this. But um, the reality is, is that he worried so much about, because our pastor used to, there'd be hundreds of people in the room, and, uh, and, and he would scan the audience. If there was a man that he's going to call and say, hey, why don't you come up and close in prayer? My dad would grip that pew like this and his knuckles were white and he would dread he's going to call me, he's going to call me, he's going to call me. My dad would have wanted to have heard what I'm about to say because I know what his heart was. His heart was for other people. He wasn't so self-centered and egotistical that he just didn't want to look bad. He just was shy and scared of the public arena as most people are. So the statement is is that rather than worry about how you will be heard when you pray, pray so that others will know they've been heard. I think that most people want to care for other people. I think that most people want to hold up others' needs more important than their own. And sometimes we just really rob ourselves and the people we care about the opportunity for them to hear, I heard you. And I want the Lord to hear you too. So as we're in our prayer groups or we're in our prayer time and somebody says, this is what I'm dealing with, this is what I'm battling, for you to repeat that in prayer and make that the most pressing thing that comes out of your mouth, not only does it get to the ears of the Lord, who's the only one who can calm the storm, but it also encourages the person that you just prayed for because they said, they heard me, they got it. And so, so many times, just replacing our intimidation, replacing our hangups, replacing all those things with what is more important to the person I should be caring for answers those problems so often. So what are we talking about? Let me give you just a list. These things are at the bottom of your page. If you came in with your notes this morning, these are things that I'm going to ask because the practical application of this is what you've already done this morning by filling out your cards and engaging in the prayer exchange. So you've already faithfully kind of done that and you're taking that next step, similar to what we did last week with the um, Bible app, which is going incredibly well. And there's lots of interaction and community building going on with that, as well as knowledge of the word of God, which was the primary purpose. 
Uh, and so your, your application of filling out the card today, uh, perhaps being at the meeting tonight in the prayer service, um, and then other things that we'll be sharing and challenging as next year unfolds and things. But I would ask for um, some prayer partnership in these areas as committed believers here at Faith in Waterville, that we would be praying towards growing unity among the saints, which is a no-brainer, right? Probably doesn't need a lot of commentary based on the year we're having. Pray that you and I will actually hunger for God's daily provision for our lives. And, and I know some of you do. Please don't take this as an insult. But I think for so many people throughout the history of Christianity, at least modern history in America, is that we haven't learned to be what it means to be fully dependent on God. We just see him as an add-on. You know, we're taking on some church or some religion to improve our lives. Do we hunger for his daily provision? Do we get through the day without his intervention and do we recognize it? To pray for protection and direction for the leadership of this church, not just its staff, but the many um, elders that have um, helped carry the, the, the brunt and the weight and the load of the direction of this church, but also our various ministry leaders who are giving of their time and, uh, and, and keeping so many aspects of, of the ministry of faith just afloat to, pr- to pray for them. Of course, money is a reality, something we don't do anything without. Um, so financial stability, not just for the church, but for God's people, for us to have our money in our margins in the right place for the Lord to do his things, um, that he intends for us. And then to pray perhaps more than almost anything else is that we would have a greater reach in greater Waterville, that we would continue to seek and save in concert with the Lord, those who are lost. And I can tell you he is on the move that these strange times and unprecedented times are producing a hunger and a seeking that are, they're washing up on our shores, if you will. And uh, God's people are ready and equipped to give them the hope of Jesus Christ. And we are seeing that happen on a, on a rapid scale. So continue to pray for that. So those are the things that we'd be calling you to do and to partner with us in and to grow in this strange mechanism that the Lord has given us called prayer. Speaking of that, Why don't we pray together? I'm going to ask you to stand as we close out our time. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together. I thank you, Lord, for the ministry of your word. And I thank you, Lord, for hearing us. God, I pray that your people would become more and more dependent on you, that I would remain dependent on you and grow in such great ways in that that I don't see coming. May we all step in faithfulness one step behind you, Lord. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for paving a way for us to even be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.